All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here this morning. Uh, today, I'm going to be examining the Lord's Supper. And before I start, I want us to just think together about a few questions. Uh, the first question is, if someone came up to you and asked you, what is the Lord's Supper? What would your response be? And what if they asked you, why do you do it? Is it important? Why is it important? Would your life and walk look any differently if you didn't do the Lord's Supper? If you didn't partake, how would you answer those questions? Why is this meal so important? Why do we do it at all besides being commanded to do so by Jesus? So I would like for us to examine those questions today. Uh, Before I can do that, I have to build a foundation for us. And so the beginning part of the sermon is really examining in context the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and what all of that meant for the Jews and means for us as Christians before we move on to practical applications. Before I start uh, with that, let me read for us our passage in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. If you'll turn with me there. Paul says, In giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup, drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together, eat To eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we examine this passage, that you'll just give us uh, eyes to see what you have plainly informed us about this supper, about this remembrance that we are to do, and in doing, proclaim your death and your 
future return, Lord. I pray that you'll just give me words to speak, that I'll be able to to speak well of you and to speak truthfully of your word, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to build this foundation of the Lord's Supper before moving on to the applications, I want us to examine three perspectives of the Lord's Supper. And those three perspectives are uh, that we must keep in mind or remember the past, and we are to look forward to the future as well as keeping the present in mind when we approach the Lord's table. And in each of those three different perspectives, I want to examine four themes. The first theme is that Jesus is the new Passover lamb. The second theme is that we have an identity, a new identity as new covenant believers. The third is that this meal is a family-only meal. And then the last is the theme of unity, servanthood, sacrifice, and love. And I kind of group those four together as one theme because they're, um, they're very tied in together. They're integrated in this text. And so to reiterate, we'll be examining the Lord's Supper in the context of the past, the future, and the present. And we'll be examining those four themes that mark out the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper. So after we've built that foundation, I'm going to move on and talk about the practical applications, answering those questions that I brought up earlier. Mainly, why is the meal important? What difference does it make in our lives and walk? Who should and should not partake of it? And why do we do it weekly? Or why should we do it weekly? So to to start, to build this foundation, we start with the past. Paul says in verse 23 that we just read, For I received from the Lord which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed. And so immediately we're taken back to the Last Supper. The context of the Lord's Supper is the Last Supper. But before we examine that, we're actually going to examine something else. And that is that the Last Supper is a bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That is, Something that Paul builds throughout 1 Corinthians is this idea that the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, the Passover, the Exodus, is seen in the Lord's table. And so immediately we're thrown further back in history. We're thrown to the time of the Exodus where God helps Israel leave Egypt. And that's what's in the apostles' minds as they got together with Jesus to eat this meal because it's a Passover meal. And so in the book of Exodus, real quick, we remember that God commanded Israel to celebrate the Passover Passover in remembrance of what he had done. And what he had done was he had slain every firstborn in Egypt, but passed over the Israelites who would put the blood of lambs on their doors and lintels. And by doing that, he also commanded the Israelites for seven days to remove any leaven from their homes. And then he told them that they are to celebrate or commemorate this event yearly in what's called the, fe- the Festival of Unleavened Bread. That's the Passover. And then what God did was by a pillar of cloud and flame, he led them out of Egypt. He parted the waters of the Red Sea. And then... He took them on dry land. They moved through the wilderness, and God gave them bread. God gave them manna to eat, and then he gave them water from a rock. That's the same story that we need to keep in mind as we read 1 Corinthians. It's a theme that Paul builds over and over in this book. What's important here is that the Passover story, that story, 
what that means now for Christians. That is that Jesus interpreted his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension through the framework that of Israel's history. And that's what the Lord's Supper is when he instituted it. The Last Supper was reinterpreting this framework of the Passover. So we see, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. That's the narrative framework, the launching point for the Last Supper. Christ is the new Passover lamb, whose blood covers our sins, and God no longer has to pour out his wrath on us. The waters of baptism matches the waters of the Red Sea that the Israelites passed through. We have a new covenant. God has tabernacled instead of in the tabernacle or in the pillar of cloud. He's now tabernacled with us in the spirit. And then when we journey, we're journeying towards the kingdom of God, partaking of the Lord's Supper the same way that the Israelites partook of the manna as they were traveling to the promised land. So what Paul is doing, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 is essentially telling the Corinthians who they are, the new Israel, what happened to them, a new exodus, where they are going, the kingdom of God and how they are to act in light of this Passover narrative, that is, obedience to God's word. They are reliving the redemption of God's people as the culmination of God's work. And so there's a new remembrance, the new remembrance of what Jesus has done as the fulfillment of the Passover. So before we move on from the Passover theme, there's another thing that I want us to keep in mind, and that is that the Passover meal was a family it was a family event. It was extremely important that they would get together and identify themselves as a family, which is why the father or the head of the home would stand over and preside over the meal and explain the symbols and the meaning. And what's significant here is that on the day of the Passover, Jesus calls the disciples from their families. And he tells them and identifies them with his own family. And so there's a true family now that's not simply marriage or genetic relationships, but rather through his blood. This is an essential part of the new covenant. For example, John says in John 1, But as many as received him, Jesus, to, him he, to them he gave the right to become children of God even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Matthew recounts Jesus saying, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is a radical redefinition of what it means to be family. It's a radical redefinition of identity for us. We're not to define ourselves simply by our genetic and marital families, but by the family of God. The church is the family of God, the children of God. This is now the the meal that is a symbol of family is now for the family and identity of Christians. To say it another way, Paul says in 
1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. Is the cup of blessing which we bless a... Oh, sorry. Is not the cupping cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Since there is one bread, there is one body. Since there is one Father, there is one family. We are members one of another, and it's partly what the Lord's Supper represents. Unity shared in community. Or to put it another way, it's a family-only meal. That is, it is only for those that are children of God, those who have faith in Jesus. The Lord's Supper is by definition a community meal for the family of God. Now, moving beyond the Passover we see another theme that marks out the Lord's Supper. And that is unity, servanthood, sacrifice, and love. Now, I group these themes together, like I said, because they're interrelated. And it marks the Last Supper because we see, for example, that Luke emphasizes it by placing in the middle of the Last Supper, in his, in his description of the Last Supper, right in the middle of it, he places a dispute among the disciples. And this is seen in Luke 22. If you want to turn there, you can. And in verse 24, Luke states this, And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest. And the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So in this text, we're reminded of the nature of the kingdom of God and how it's completely reversed from our own hierarchical mindsets, how our social structures work. Matthew and Mark recounts a very similar way of thinking in their Gospels as well, where human pride is crushed by servant leadership within the kingdom of God. Luke weighs the meaning of the Last Supper towards this humble service by putting right in the middle of it that dispute and Jesus' explanation of it. And we know Paul does the same because in 1 Corinthians, that's the very same divisive mindset of rich against poor, Better against not as good that we have Paul so harshly criticizing the Corinthians. We also see the same type of thing in John, where Jesus models service. Now, John's account of the Last Supper is a little interesting because he splits the Lord's Supper proper in chapter 13, but also comments on it in chapter 6, where Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. In John's account, chapter 13, the emphasis is actually not on the institution of the Lord's Supper, because John doesn't actually talk about that. Instead, right there, the centerpiece of chapter 13, where Jesus sits with his disciples for the Last Supper, is foot washing. That's the centerpiece. That's the, the emphasis if you read it. And so in John chapter 13, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and that he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
During the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from the Father and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then a little later in explaining the significance of this, John says, And so when he had finished washing their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also do, you should do as I did for you. So this foot washing scene, this lowly service of cleaning dirty, grimy, smelly feet stands at the center of John's account of the Last Supper. It focuses on the master, the God of the universe, washing the feet of fishermen. And with that, the focus then is on love, love for one another. Jesus asks, do you know what I have done? Love one another, wash each other's feet. So an emphasis emerges for the apostles, for the Corinthians, and for us. That is, love, service, and humility marks the Last Supper and subsequently should mark the Lord's Supper. If the Lord's Supper is a meal that looks backwards, it's also a meal that looks forward. Paul says that not only does partaking of the Lord's Supper proclaim the Lord's death, it proclaims it until he comes in the future. As one scholar puts it, the Lord's Supper is primarily a forward-looking, future-hoping celebration, even as the Last Supper was. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste, a little peek, a little glimpse behind the curtain of the ultimate feast. It is an appetizer, a teaser for the future banquet of the wedding feast. All four gospel writers emphasize this in their accounts. Uh, In Matthew and Mark, we see as Jesus institutes the cup, he talks about how he would no longer drink of it until the kingdom of God comes. Matthew, or sorry, Mark says it this way. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Luke essentially says the same thing, but what Luke does that's a little different is he actually does it before the institution of the bread and the cup. So Jesus takes a cup, says pretty much the same thing, and then breaks the bread and gives the cup. And so we see Luke actually emphasizing the future return of Jesus even more. We see a similar statement in John, not so much about not drinking the cup, but John 6, where Jesus emphasizes the idea that unless we eat his body and drink his blood, we would not have eternal life. But if we do, then we would have eternal life and be raised on the last day. And so we see that essentially all four gospel accounts emphasize this idea where the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper has a future-looking eschatological aspect to it. And so the Last Supper has this heavy emphasis. When Jesus returns, he's going to come back for his very own, and there's going to be a great supper, a great banquet, a feast for all of us. Revelation 19 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give 
the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Once again, we see here the image of Jesus as the Lamb, the paschal sacrifice for us. But the point is that the banquet is, sorry, the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the future banquet. The banquet of the Lamb, the body and blood of the Lamb that was poured out for us, rather than be the supper in the future, Jesus will celebrate in the supper with his people. But again, a banquet isn't eaten alone. It is eaten with others. And in the context of the future, it's eaten with the people of God. It is eaten with the new covenant believers. We see this idea of an identity of new covenant believers in Revelation 14, where we see uh, new covenant believers celebrating in the presence of God in heaven. And on their foreheads is marked the, fa- the name of the Father and the Lamb, demarcating them as his people. The future feast that the Lord's table points to is also a family-only meal because only family will be there in heaven to celebrate Jesus. When we think about salvation in heaven, it's easy for us in our American individualistic culture to think about it from a very internalized and me-only focus. It's about me and what God has done for me and what that now that I am made right with God, I can enter heaven and enjoy him forever. And there are true realities to that. But the Christianity that is me and Jesus only is far removed from first century Christianity because Jesus instituted the church, the assembly. And in so doing, we together as a body are to meet to encourage each other, to look forward to Jesus' coming, to keep each other from stumbling so that we can look forward to that feast, that wedding feast, where we'll celebrate together. With that in mind, past and future, we look at the present, because the Lord's Supper is in the present. Jesus said, do this. Doing this means active, present, right now. Do this. And so we are to do, and in so doing, we are able to look back and look forward One theologian states, Paul explains, reminding them of the traditional story of the Last Supper. And when the meal is celebrated, the Lord himself is there, not simply absent away in the past or longed for at his coming in the future, but present through this memorial. The Eucharist is the moment at which the past comes forward to live again in the present, and the future moment of the Lord's return comes backwards in time to challenge us in the present. And so we are to do this, and doing it isn't just a good opportunity for us to talk about the gospel. Paul actually says that, Jesus says, that by the act of doing, the breaking of the bread, the drinking of the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Doing it says it. Doing it is proclaiming the gospel we are told to do this in remembrance. It's not just some append- some optional appendix that we add on at the end of our service as if, yeah, maybe we'll do it, maybe we won't. It's actually a command, something that we are to do together as Christians. It's, um, 
it's this moment, this moment where the past comes forward and the future reaches backwards that we get to experience the greatness of God in Jesus, what he's done for us. Some theologians call baptism the initiation and the Lord's Supper as the renewal, the, the renewal rite. Others think of it as the marriage, uh, the marriage day, marriage ceremony, and the marriage bed. Whatever, however you look at it, God's gift to us in the Lord's Supper is his sign of covenantal remembrance that we are his new covenant believers. It is God's grace given to us in our remembrance of him and what he's done for us. But lest we think that this is simply an individual me, us thing, Paul stresses that the Lord's table is eaten together. Because that's the problem in Corinth. They were eating by themselves. And so by eating by themselves on their own, Paul says, in doing this, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That eating together is extremely important. I I read this verse earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. Paul says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread in which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That is, the body of Jesus really is one body. The sharing of the Lord's table, in fact, binds believers together as one in the one, Jesus Christ. And again, Paul says, as Jesus does, doing it says it. By eating together, you're proclaiming that you are one body. By breaking the same bread and drinking the same cup, that's what we are doing. As the assembled body of Jesus, we declare to everyone we are one body in him. And when you have divisions, schisms, sects, us versus them, popular and unpopular, rich and poor, haves and haves not, you powerfully declare the opposite, that you are not one body or that you are a broken body. Do this in remembrance of me is not a command to individuals. It's a command to all of us to do it together. And in some way, by remembering him together, we are at the same time proclaiming the gospel together. Paul Barnett says, In short, at the dinner of the Lord, the members tell one another the gospel, centered in the death of Christ and his second coming. You cannot eat the Lord's Supper alone. It's a fellowship meal. It's a communion. It is when believers proclaim the gospel to one another and affirm one another's proclamation of faith. This is one very important reason why unbelievers and those under church discipline should not and cannot partake of this meal. Because because in the Lord's Supper, the church as a whole affirm each other's covenant-believing identity as members of the covenant family. The church as a unified assembly states, yes, you are in fact a part of us, and we a part of you. We as members one of another partake of the one bread and the one cup together. And I'll expand on this shortly. 
Because it leads me to my final point, which is our practical applications, our practical implications here. Everything I've been doing is building a little bit for this foundation to go into the questions such as who who should not partake of the Lord's Supper, why and why not. So before I expand on this, let me just recap for us a little bit everything we've been talking about. Paul reiterated the story of the Last Supper and reminds the Corinthians that Jesus is the new Passover lamb. He, he tells them who they are, the new Israel, what has happened to them, the new Exodus, where they are going, the kingdom of heaven, and how they are to act in light of this, obedience to Jesus. That is, that they are new covenant believers. And it is as the people of God, the body of Jesus, that they eat this family-only meal that is marked by unity, servanthood, sacrifice, and love. They are to gather together as new covenant believers and wash each other's feet. And so keeping that in mind, Paul talks about eating in an unworthy manner. And Paul says this starting in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are sick and weak, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So my first question is, who eats in an unworthy manner? Or to put it another way, who should not eat of the Lord's table? Keep in mind the context, who Paul is talking to, what he's referencing. The immediate context, as we've discussed, is that there are schisms and divisions going on in in them gathering together for the Lord's Supper. The selfishness and insensitivity of the, the wealthy Corinthians have caused the guilt and uh, sorry, caused them to be guilty of the blood and body of the Lord. That means guilty of his death. It is this very type of division, this type of selfishness that has brought about the crucifixion of the Messiah. And so Paul is saying that by repeating those same type of attitudes when they got together to remember his crucifixion, they share in the guilt of those who have crucified the Son of Glory. But it's not merely that those attitudes exist, that they're guilty of this. Those attitudes are always part of us as fallen human beings. What Paul is saying, rather, is that they are so blinded that they are not seeing the problem. That when they got together, they didn't even see that they had these divisions, these schisms. They weren't thinking about it. So Paul tells them to examine or to test themselves. And it's in this manner that they should be eating and drinking of the table. That is, rather than partake flippantly while sinning, while being divisive, they they should eat in a state of self-examination. It's not simply you think about your sins for a week, and then you come back together and you eat. Rather, it is the state of, you are actively examining as you partake of the Lord's Supper. It's an active testing in the moment 
as you partake of it, seeing what's going on. I believe it means coming to the conclusion that repentance is necessary. As you examine yourself before the cup and the bread, you look through and see, I need to repent of my heart attitudes. So for the Corinthians, it would mean looking at their lives, seeing the division going on, repenting of it, coming together in genuine brotherly love, rich and poor, fellowshipping together and eating together. That's why Paul says for them to wait before they come together to eat. It is not just the act of waiting for one another, but rather that they are examining themselves, coming to repentance and coming to Together in brotherly love. The rich in Corinth weren't examining themselves and seeing their sin of division. They didn't discern the body. So Paul says in verse 29, for he who eats, or he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. As the body of the Lord, we are to partake of the body of the Lord, and in so doing, pronounce that we are in fact the body of the Lord. If that sounds confusing, it's because it's a play on words. Both the body as a people and the body as the bread is significant. Discerning the body here means actually discerning one's impact on each other's lives in the church. Your relationships with others is a significant part of partaking of the body of the Lord as the bread. So the most obvious answer to who eats or who should not eat of the Lord's Supper is those who in some way are creating divisions, schisms, factions in the assembled body of God and they're unrepentant of it. Do the ways in which you interact with your brothers and sisters reflect Jesus or the pagan American world? Does your life demonstrate unity, servanthood, sacrifice, and brotherly love? That aspect here is really important because unity, servanthood, sacrifice, and love is crucial to understanding Paul's concern in the Corinthian church. Their schisms were in direct contradiction to the whole point that Jesus was making both in washing the feet and in telling the disciples about how they are to live. But I think we would be mistaken to think Paul is only talking about divisions, right? So we put this verse in its context. Paul is talking about division, but I think there's more than that. Because the book of Corinthians as a whole, 1 Corinthians as a whole, speaks about many different issues, a quick survey, Paul addresses divisions in chapter 1 through 4, sexual sin and confusion in the church in chapters 5 through 7, appropriate responses to food offered to idols and avoiding idolatry in chapters 8 through 10, inappropriate behavior when Christians gathered together for worship in 11 through 14, and then mistaken thinking about resurrection in chapter 15. So we see here that there's obviously a lot more going on in the church in Corinth than simply division. For example, Paul brings in the Lord's Supper when he's talking about idolatry in chapter 10. There he talks about how partaking of the supper makes us one body, and therefore we could not partake of uh, the cup of idols. It would be hard for us to imagine that Paul would not think an unrepentant sinner who was partaking in idolatry is not unworthy of the Lord's Supper. I want us to examine... 1 Corinthians 5, if you'll turn there. And I think that this text will help us illuminate for us the Lord's Supper a little bit more. 
And I would argue that Paul has 1 Corinthians 5, or sorry, the Lord's table in view in 1 Corinthians 5. So let me read that for us. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, so uh, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, your Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or swindlers, or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? For those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul here, in Verse 7 refers to Jesus as the Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And then in verse 8, he says, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. He identifies Jesus as the Passover and then says, Let us celebrate the feast. I believe Paul here is referencing the Lord's Supper. And so to reiterate, right, Jesus being the new, new covenant, new Passover lamb, the feast is that's in view, is the Lord's Supper. And so then Paul tells the Corinthian church not to eat the Lord's Supper with professing Christians who continue in unrepentant sin. Paul gives us a list of such sins, such as sexual immorality, greed, swindling others, idolatry, reviling others, and drunkenness. I think we can be pretty confident Paul is not saying that we need to be perfect. Instead, I believe what Paul is saying is that those who practice such things in a hidden and unrepentant manner are not allowed to partake, should not partake. Much like the rich who were creating divisions among themselves and didn't examine themselves rightly, didn't see their sin, and didn't repent of it, Paul is saying the same thing with drunkards, swindlers, idolaters, it is those that are unrepentant that are unworthy to partake. That is, to eat the Lord's Supper while you have hidden and unrepentant sins, such as listed, is to partake in an unworthy manner. Paul tells the church not to let them partake, to remove them from the Lord's table. Paul says that our lives need to match our proclamation. Again, that doesn't mean perfection. The Lord's table is for sinners, but it's a table for repentant sinners. It is for those who, despite their failures, are repenting of their sins and seeking righteousness. For those who have faith in Jesus. It is for those who, while failing, actively turn away from their sins and actively turn towards Jesus. It is an orientation of the heart, not the destination of holiness or achievement of holiness. But the very command, the very command to say, remove from among yourselves the wicked, indicates that it's not only individuals who need to examine themselves 
but also the responsibility of the church as a whole to be concerned about unrepentant sinners. That is, the body, the church, should be keeping people who have serious, unrepentant, scandalous sins from partaking in the Lord's Supper. The church is responsible to, Paul says, judge those who are within the church and remove the wicked man from among itself. Why is that? Because the Lord's table is a family-only meal for New Covenant members. The New Covenant members know how to act in light of Jesus, and serious, scandalous sins that are unrepented of or hidden indicate that the person may not be a regenerate member of the New Covenant community. And if you are not a regenerate member, then you are not to partake of the family-only meal of the Lord. That's why it's so important for the church to practice church discipline and to understand the Lord's Supper in light of its communal, familial, and fellowship aspects. It is not a meal to be eaten alone or to be contemplated on alone. It is a meal that the whole church partakes in. But if the church as a whole is to keep unrepentant individuals from partaking in an unworthy manner, then it's our obligation to guard the Lord's table. As a family meal, we are affirming each other's family identity when we allow each other to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's the flip side to saying you can't partake is to say that you can partake. To say that you are not part of the family, the flip side of that is to say you are part of the family. For example, in baptism, it's not only the person being baptized that simply says that they have faith in Jesus and should be baptized. It is also the church, the assembled people of God, who confirms, affirms that the person is a true confessor of the true gospel. That is, that their gospel is in line with what scripture says and that their lives indicate repentance and faith. The church affirms the right confessor and the right confession. It's done through examining the person's confession and the person's life. That's the same with the Lord's Supper. It's continuing that. After their baptism, you continue to affirm a person's profession of faith through the Lord's Supper. When I partake, I affirm, yes, I am a new covenant member. And at the same time, we confess, yes, you are a new covenant member. For individuals, how do we do this practically? There's two, two things we do for, as individuals and as a church. As individuals like you and me, it would mean examining our life in light of discerning the body. It means looking at our relationships within the assembled body and asking ourselves, do our lives, are our lives and relationships marked out by unity, servanthood, sacrifice, and love? If not, are you repentant? Remember, it's not like Catholic confession where you have to think through every sin and you have to confess them all. Rather, it is our orientation of being humble in our state of examination and looking at our lives and repenting of it and then partaking. Paul Barnett asks a list of questions for self-examination. What do, what do I think of others in the congregation, especially those who may, not, who may be less educated or poor? Do I regard them as in some way inferior? Do I prefer the company of the clever, the accomplished, the articulate, the wealthy? Do I avoid those who are at the other end of the spectrum? With that said, 
I do not believe that simply because you show favoritism or that you're upset with someone else that you should not partake. I've heard people who, because they've had an argument with their spouse that morning or the night before, that they do not partake of the Lord's Supper. And one scriptural example that is often used is Matthew 5. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 21. And here, Matthew states, or Jesus, he recounts what Jesus says. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is hungry, angry, sorry, with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty of the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty, <clears throat> shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. Here we have Matthew recounting teaching from Jesus. And Jesus is reinterpreting and, in fact, fulfilling the law of the command, you shall not murder. And Jesus tells us that, in fact, anyone who is even angry with a brother has already committed murder. We, of course, know Jesus is pointing to the fact that we must have perfect righteousness. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died in our place. That's why we need the Lord's table to remind us of the fact that we are not perfect that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. The verse that's often used here, it's verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. And so a lot of people you look at those verses and say, I can't partake. I, I have to be reconciled to my brother or sister. But we need to remember, first of all, that Jesus is not talking about the Lord's Supper. The table has yet to be instituted. The context here has nothing specifically to do with the Lord's Supper. It's about an offering, sacrifice to God. But we have to remember the Lord's table is not our sacrifice to God. It is Jesus' offering on our behalf to God. It's the opposite of our sacrifice to God. The Lord's Supper is not somehow specifically or specially our offering more than any other aspect of our regular Sunday worship. If we were to take these verses and apply it, it should be applied to the entire worship service. We should leave church altogether and go and make amends. What makes the Lord's table any more applicable to this text than any other part of our worship service? I believe, I do not believe that Matthew 5 is speaking about not partaking of the Lord's Supper if you're angry with someone. Rather, I believe it highlights what we've been talking about, which is that if your relationships are strained, hurt, 
or in any way damage and you are unrepentant of it, that you need to seek repentance. Seek it before you partake. Otherwise, you're, you're guilty of the sin of murder, of division. Abstain from the Lord's table. Examine yourself. Are you unrepentant? Do your life and heart match the gospel that you proclaim? And if not, seek God to give you repentance and then seek reconciliation before you partake. Then come back and partake of the Lord's Supper. If you are repentant, then partake. Be able to see God's grace to you broken on that table and then go and seek repentance as soon as possible. Another way to examine whether the Lord's table is for you is looking internally to see if there are serious, unrepentant sins that you have yet to confess. Do you have serious, hidden, and unconfessed sins? If the church knew about it, would they discipline you for it? If you see sin in your life and you're unrepentant of that sin, then abstain from the table. Ask God to give you repentance because your heart and life is not in line with the gospel that you are proclaiming. Seek God to give you repentance, confess to the parties involved, and then come back and partake of the Lord's table. If you are repentant and seeking Jesus in faith, then partake. Enjoy God's grace through his body, broken for you. If you need to confess to somebody, confess to the parties involved, and then go and do that as soon as possible. Apart from individually and internally, the Lord's Supper also involves the entire church. The entire church must be exercising biblical church discipline. It means being on the lookout to love one another, to encourage one another, to rebuke one another, to walk alongside one another, to weep with one another, and to rejoice with one another. It means living life together so as to encourage one another in love and good deeds. We must not neglect meeting together so that we can keep on affirming each other, keeping each other from stumbling, so that we can keep each other accountable and keep each other from not from giving up, from not running the race with endurance. It means possibly confronting a brother or sister in their sin, and then if they don't repent, bring two or three others. If they still don't repent, then bring it before the church. And in that way, because of their unrepentance, we can guard the Lord's table as a family-only meal, that we can truly be one body when we eat of the one bread. One of the questions that come up is, why do we do this weekly? I think there are a lot of good reasons why we should do this weekly, but firstly, I believe it ties in with our repenting and partaking. That is, one reason to do it weekly is that we can repent, confess, and come back and partake and be affirmed in our proclamation of faith, so that you can be affirmed that you are one with the body. To not participate in the Lord's Supper should be a scary place to be because it tells you that you may not be a new covenant believer, that you may not be part of this family, which is why you're not partaking of the family-only meal. To, to not partake is to say 
effectively that Jesus may not be your Passover lamb. When you do not participate or are barred from participating, it's a scream, it's a cry, it's a giant neon sign that says, repent and believe. Do not linger there. Do you want to linger there and not be affirmed again as soon as possible? Doing it weekly helps you not linger in uncertainty, but rather be affirmed by your family as a new covenant believer. Doing it weekly gives us the opportunity also to enjoy God's grace and to proclaim the gospel regularly. Doing it says it. We are to proclaim the gospel. We rejoice in proclaiming Jesus' death until he returns. returns. It is a confirmation of each other's lives as well. We say, I see your faith. I see your repentance. I see your love for Jesus, and I affirm it. It's a way for us to tell others the gospel. It's a way for us to tell each other that despite the difficulties in life, I still trust Jesus. It is a witness and a testimony to each other of the power of the gospel in our lives. It is a way for us to continue in solidarity, in rejoicing about the God who gave up his body for us. There's also biblical precedents. One scholar says, from what we see in 1 Corinthians 11, 17-34, it seems that the church partook of the Lord's Supper when it came together. And from 1 Corinthians 16, 2, it seems that the Corinthian church came together on the first day of the week. When combined with a text like Acts 27, which indicates that Paul practices, sorry, Paul's practice was to celebrate the Lord's Supper with the church when it gathered for worship on the first day of the week, it would seem that the er- this was the early church's practice. It's not clear to me, the scholar says, why churches that seek to model themselves by the pattern of the church life and structure seen in the New Testament would not also partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. One of the most often um, quoted complaints that I've heard about partic- partaking the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis is that it can become ritualistic, that it becomes just another thing that you do. Um, this is... This is interesting because we come to church on Sunday every week. And so we don't do that and say that that is now becoming ritualistic. We sing songs. We listen to sermons. We talk to each other, pray together. None of those things become too repetitive. Why Why the difference with the Lord's table? One of my professors put it this way. He said he came up to his wife one day and told her, You know, honey, you know I love you. And so, you know, we do this kissing thing all the time. Let's just, let's just hold out. Let's, let's wait. Let's do it once a month. And then when we kiss, it will mean a lot more for us. Of course, he was joking, but he points out instead that as he was counseling people, he sees he came across people that are so broken, so hopeless, so in need of Jesus that he wished he could give them a pill, an encapsulation of the gospel so that they can touch and feel and taste the goodness of God. And then he remembers it's called the Lord's Supper. Right there in that bread and in that cup is the visible image of Jesus' death on the cross and his sacrifice. And at the same time, we get to proclaim Jesus' death until he returns. Does celebrating the Lord's Supper mean that we have to force ourselves to examine ourselves more? Yeah, probably. It, It might But we are always to be preparing our hearts and minds. We are always to be examining our lives We're always to be coming together and helping each other and loving each other and affirming each other's walk.
The Lord's Supper is a great way for us to continue to do that. The Lord's table is a remembrance and a proclamation. It's a grace from God given to us, the people of God, in the present to remind us of what Jesus has done in the past and for us to look forward to in anticipation of what he will complete in the future. It's a meal for us to partake together, to affirm affirm each other's profession of faith and one another's membership as part of the same family. It's an intimate meal, a family-only meal. And it is it, it is a table for those who are seeking Jesus in repentance, turning away from their sin and towards righteousness. It is for those who, as broken sinners, are imperfect. It is a command from God to do in remembrance of him. So as we end our service, let us turn to God in repentance for our sins and together as a family partake of the Lord's Supper. Let us affirm each other's life, faith, and profession. Let us proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we stand as unclean vessels who seek to do your will, Lord. Help us to help us to continue to grow in our love for you in seeing our sin more and more, Lord. One of the things that I've learned and many people have said is that the longer you're a Christian, the more you see how sinful you are. And the more you see, the more I see my need for you. I pray that you'll help us to continue to examine ourselves, see our sins, repent of it, and reconcile with our brothers and sisters. I pray that we'll continue to affirm each other's faith, that we continue to meet together, to love each other, and to affirm each other. In Jesus' name, amen.